Any Christian that wants to obey Jesus' words needs to be about the business of evangelism. Evangelistic conversations are often going to lead to pushback from unbelievers. They'll present objections, and believers will need to be prepared very well to respond to them. The good news is this. There are really only three basic categories of objections. Knowing what these categories are can help us ready ourselves to respond to any objection given by anyone at any time. I'm Joel Sedecase, and this is The Think Podcast. Welcome to The Think Podcast, the show that tackles impossible questions from a biblical perspective with your host, Joel Sedecase. And now, get ready to think. All right, well, welcome to The Think Podcast. I'm Joel Sedecase. And this is the show that tackles impossible questions from a biblical perspective to help you explain, share, and defend the Christian message. So today we're talking about objections and the different kinds of objections that you will get as a follower of Jesus Christ. Before we really dig in, let me just do a little housekeeping. And let me say, if you're watching on Facebook, thank you for watching. If you want to comment on Facebook, you can go to streamyard.com slash Facebook and enter your permissions there so that uh, Facebook and StreamYard will recognize you and you will be able to interact. Of course, best way to really interact is by going to YouTube. And if you're on YouTube, subscribe, please, to this channel so that you don't miss a moment. Make sure you hit that bell. And I also want to let you know that we have something very exciting. So uh, beyond the Think Podcast, the Think Institute does all kinds of really fun things. Uh, actually, earlier this week, yesterday, as a matter of fact, the days are all kind of blurring together right now, but I was in the city of Chicago teaching at a homeschool co-op called Veritas. And um, I helped to develop some worldview evangelism and apologetics curriculum for the um, the rhetoric level, which is the high schoolers there at Veritas. And every now and then I go in there to teach. And uh, so had a lot of fun with those students. They're super bright, super, it was just super encouraging to be there with uh, those young men and women, students, learners, um, the folks running that operation are just top notch. So if you're in the city of Chicago looking to provide your kids a classical education, I highly recommend Veritas. As a matter of fact, I had Christine Parker on the Think Podcast last year to talk about how to win at homeschooling. So um, I don't know if that was before or after the start of the pandemic and all the lockdowns and, and things like that, but you can go check that out, um, How to Win at Homeschooling. That was one of our episodes. And um, I want to let you know about something else very cool that we're doing, and that is having to do with the Hammer and Anvil Society. This is the semi-secretive wing, the applied discipleship wing of the Think Institute. This is where we do our extended training, month-long, week-long, uh, or multi-week-long training programs. Um, it sort of evolved over the last year, and what started out as a elite cohort of men going through discipleship training in uh, the biblical worldview, evangelism, philosophy, apologetics, has now morphed into a series of courses, six to eight weeks long, and um, 
We are just wrapping up our first one, which has been a Bible study through the Gospel of Mark, getting ready to launch uh, cohort courses number two and three. And um, the next one is going to be a Bible study through the book of Ephesians. And then we're going, going to do another one on the apologetics of Jesus and Paul. So this is the stuff that I love. If you know me, I love to teach. I love opening up the Bible and um, unpacking what it says and then helping uh, fellow believers, brothers and sisters in Christ to understand what the Bible says and apply it. And um, because it's the Think Institute, of course, we're always examining things from a Christian worldview perspective, uh, philosophy, apologetics. How do we explain this? How do we convey this? How do we defend this against objections? So should have a lot of fun with that. If you want to learn more, you can go to thethink.institute slash hammer and anvil. Thethink.institute slash hammer and anvil. The registrations have already started rolling in for that. Um, I think the Bible study course uh, through Ephesians is like 40 bucks. The one on the apologetics of Jesus and Paul is going to be 30 bucks. That's only six weeks long instead of eight weeks long. But you can check those out at thethink.institute slash hammer and anvil. Also, if you want to support the Think Institute partner with my family and me as we run this ministry and um, seek to equip believers to explain, share, and defend the Christian message, partnering with local churches, local ministries, conferences, um, all the, the media that we do, if you're listening on the podcast or watching on YouTube, thank you for watching, thank you for listening. But you can actually partner with us by going to give.crew.org slash 101 8841. Give.crew, C-R-U.org slash 101-8841. And if you're watching on Facebook or YouTube, I'm going to go ahead and leave the information about the Hammer and Anvil Society course uh, right there on the bottom. So you'll have that information. You can go and learn more and uh, get registered. All right. If you have any comments or questions as we go, you can leave them in the comments and then we will be addressing them toward the end. So Guys who are watching, uh, Noah Despain already weighed in. Elicio Trejo is watching. Uh, thank you, thank you guys for watching. And if you're catching us later or um, listening on the podcast, thank you for watching. Thank you for listening. Thank you for engaging. Go ahead and drop those comments in the comment section below. All right, here we go. Let's get into the kinds of objections that you will face as a Christian. So you're a Christian. That's our starting point. That's wonderful. Uh, you've repented of your sins and believed the gospel. Mark 1.15, Jesus says, repent and believe the gospel. You've embraced Jesus as Lord and Savior. You've received him. Uh, you've become a child of God. You believe in God, but more than that, you believe that God raised Jesus from the dead, which according to Romans 10.9, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You have um, recognized that God gave Jesus all authority in heaven and on earth, and you're committed to following Jesus and obeying him in all things. Well, again, first of all, that is awesome. And I mean that. I'm not using that word lightly. That is truly awesome. As a matter of fact, it's a miracle. Salvation by grace through faith is a gift from God, according to Ephesians 2, 8, 9. And the fact that you've dedicated yourself to obeying Jesus is a sign that you really do love him. But now I need to warn you, obedience of Jesus comes with a social cost. The fact that you recognize Jesus as Lord puts you at odds with many of your neighbors and the people that you will come into contact with. This is just a fact of life. It's a fact 
of Christianity, of being a Christian. Um, guess what? The people in your life, many of them, don't recognize the Lordship of Jesus. That kind of goes without saying, right? So here's the thing about how the social cost comes in. And th this is really twofold. One of Jesus's commands is to make disciples, right? And that requires evangelism, correct? So this is the first part of the social cost. You are putting yourself at risk of a continuous state of awkwardness at some level because whenever you're conversing with your non-believing loved ones, friends, coworkers, acquaintances, neighbors, you're going to be thinking about how you can direct that conversation around to talking about Jesus. That's just a fact. That's something that we do as Christians. And here's the second part of the social cost. When you evangelize, i.e. when you convey the gospel that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior, someone who does not recognize his lordship um, is, is going to give you pushback. You're going to get pushback as a Christian. Now, I know we're not always thinking about evangelism. We're not always thinking about, you know, uh, being prepared for pushback. But really, as Christians, we really need to be, don't we? Wasn't Jesus always ready for that? So we need to be ready for this. And that's just part of the social cost. There's going to be conversational and relational friction when you tell a man the news that Jesus is Lord and he is not. But, but guess what? Someone braved that conversational friction for you if you're a follower of Jesus, and you need to be willing to brave it for them. Um, we just we we just need to be ready. So uh, we're talking about the three different kinds of objections you're going to get, and we just have to first embrace the fact that we're going to get objections. He's going to have objections to your faith, and he's going to challenge your faith, and he's going to have reasons why he himself does not believe. I'm talking about the unbeliever here. So there's no way to avoid this. We might as well just prepare for it. All right, so how do we prepare for objections? While some think of Christianity as blind faith-based or emotionally driven, and God help you if that's what your Christian religion is based on, blind faith or emotions, I mean that God help you because it shouldn't be. Uh, we have to understand that loving Jesus means loving the Lord with our minds, Luke 10, 27. And what we need here is not blind faith, not emotionalism, but knowledge. Hosea 4.6 says, quote, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge, and we don't want to neglect knowledge. We don't want to get caught flat-footed in conversation with unbelievers because we rejected God's knowledge. We failed to study his word, to study the scriptures, because we didn't think it was important to prepare. God help us. So we need to prepare, we need to know very well what God's Word says so that we can handle objections. And we also need to understand, while objections may be multifarious, there are, there are many different kinds of them, there are really only three main kinds or categories of objections that you will get. If you can prepare to answer each kind of objection, you can learn, and if you can learn to identify your discussion partner or your opponent's objection as being in one of these categories, then you will be one huge step closer to being ready to answer any objection from anyone at any time. So, what are the three kinds of objections? Uh, they all begin with S as I categorize them, and here's what they are. The first one is scripture-based objections. Now, these are perceived problems with the Bible. They could be logical 
authorial, meaning having to do with the authors of scripture. They could be moral or they could be related to the transmission of the text over time. In other words, these objections boil down to this. The Bible upon which Christianity is based is wrong, inconsistent, or bad in some way. Here are some examples of scriptural objections. The New Testament was written too long after the facts it describes to be considered trustworthy. You've probably heard that one. How about this? The Bible is full of contradictions. Or, we can't know who wrote the Bible. You know, the Gospels were written anonymously, and therefore that brings everything into question that they say. Or, the authors of the Bible were biased. We can't trust them. Or, the God of the Bible, especially the Old Testament, is immoral. Next category. So, these are all scripture-based objections. The next category, then, is situation-based objections. These are the seeming incompatibilities between Christian truth claims and the world. In other words, Christian teachings are false, unsubstantiated, or harmful. Here are some examples of situational objections or situation-based objections. If God were real, then evil wouldn't exist. Sometimes that's phrased in terms of like, God, if God is uh, or, or they'll say it's it's inconsistent for an omnicompetent, omnibenevolent God to exist and evil to exist. Omnicompetent meaning all-knowing, all-powerful. Omnibenevolent meaning all-loving and all-good, or perfectly loving, perfectly good. Okay, that's that's one objection. Another example would be Christianity is bad for society. Have you heard that? You know, Christianity just produces bigots. It's outmoded, outdated. You know, tell me if you've heard some of these. You can drop me an email or look, if you're watching live, drop it in the comments. Tell me if you've if you've heard of these because that'll help me know which ones I need to address in the future. Or here's another one. All the wars of the world have been caused by religion. Or how about this? Faith is just believing something without evidence or in spite of the evidence. And then related to that is Christianity is unscientific. Or how about this one? There are so many religions in the world, you can't possibly know if yours is the only true one. All right, people are beginning to weigh in. Uh, Noah Despain says he's heard all of these before. Um, Yeah, I have too. Absolutely. Now, this third category though, this one gets a little trickier. We've got scripture-based objections. We've got situation-based objections. And then we've got the third category, which is self-based objections. These are problems arise from one's own lived experience or human existence. These could be called soul objections, if you want, because rather than being rational or evidential, as the other categories of of objections are purported to be, these ones stem from one's emotional state or are rooted in visceral reactions rather than weighing the evidence. Now, I don't personally hold that, well, we're going to get into evidence in just a little bit, so let me don't, let me not get ahead of myself. Examples of self-based objections would include Christianity is just a crutch, and it's one I don't need. Christians are hypocrites. I've been hurt by the church. I need to be free to do me, you know, things like that. 
By the way, when I said that last one to the high schoolers yesterday, uh, they they started laughing. They've heard that before. I just want to do me. You know, that's that's what the young folks are saying these days, or so they tell me. Hey, Joel here from the Think Institute. Would you like to bring the Think Institute to your church, group, ministry, or conference? We can provide high-quality, theologically sound, and engaging education in the areas of evangelism, apologetics, and the biblical worldview. We've spoken at churches, schools, conferences, and groups in Chicago, Indianapolis, Franklin, Tennessee, New Orleans, Dubai, and the Philippines, and more. We want to help your local church, ministry, or conference fulfill your piece of the Great Commission. We can provide teaching in person or remotely using our state-of-the-art conferencing technology. Learn more about bringing me or a member of the Think Institute team to your church, ministry, group, or conference by going to thethink.institute slash booking. That's thethink.institute slash booking. So how do we respond to these different objections? So far, all we have is a diagnosis, or really what we have is a diagnostic tool. Using the three categories that we just talked about, you should be able to classify your opponent or discussion partner's argument, which will then better prepare you to answer it. What I'm hoping here, what I'm hoping to provide you with is a means for categorizing objections. And then if you can learn how to respond to each of the categories, you really only need three responses for every objection that's out there. You see how simple this is? And for all these objections, we want to remain firmly rooted in the biblical worldview and with our feet planted in scripture and our eyes on the prize, meaning we want to lead this person to Christ. We want to um, to lead this person to Jesus Christ. Evangelism and apologetics go hand in hand. All right. So how do we respond? Well, for scripture-based objections, the goal of these objections is to show that the Bible and therefore the Christian religion, which is based upon it, is false. But as our current president might say, look, here's the deal, Jack. If the Bible weren't true, he wouldn't say this part. If the Bible weren't true, then you'd lose a lot more than Christianity. See, it's the Bible that reveals the triune God who grounds things like logic and truth. So if the Bible weren't true, logic, which is necessary for contradictions to be a thing, and truth, which is necessary for falsehoods to be a thing, and morality, which is necessary for objections like God commanded evil, God's a moral monster, to be meaningful, these objections all evaporate. Poof! No more objection. You can't have logical violations if there's no such thing as logic. And yes, Logic does require God, as do truth and morality. I've written about those um, elsewhere. And actually, if you go to this article on the website, uh, I have links to the um, to those articles. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to go ahead and post a comment online right now, and I'm posting a link to this article. You can read this article, and you can... Uh, get those links within that article. I mean, literally, the podcast I'm recording right now is uh, is something I wrote up on the website. It's, a, it's an apologetics article that I wrote on there. Okay, hopefully that's clear. Now, um, if the Bible were false, then it wouldn't matter if the Bible were false because nothing would be logical, true, or moral. Those are Christian, those are biblical concepts. 
Again, I've written about this before. I'm not going to fully flesh out that argument, but if you go to those links, um, I have fully fleshed out arguments at the links. Okay. Now, within the biblical Christian worldview, however, where the Bible is true, there's no problem with perceived problems with the Bible. Why? Because within this worldview, God is the basis for truth, logic, and morality, and as such, he is the ultimate defeater for any perceived violation of truth, logic, or morality in Scripture. Get a hold of this because this is very important. Any problem that we have with Scripture is a reflection on us, not a reflection of God's Word. We either misunderstand what it's saying, or we don't understand why what it's saying is good. But within Christianity, there is no way of disproving the Bible. Some will say that that makes Christianity unfalsifiable, as if that's a bad thing. But as my friend Eli Ayala says, that's not a weakness of Christianity. That's a strength. So if we start with the Bible as God's Word, then all problems with the Bible disappear. If, on the other hand, we start with the contrary position that the Bible is false or even possibly false, which is really the same thing as calling it false since the Bible claims to be totally true. So if you say, no, the Bible is not totally true, absolutely true, the Bible's possibly false, that's another way of saying that the Bible's claim about itself is false and therefore the Bible is false. Then, if you start from that position, truth, logic, and morality lose all meaningfulness and the objections disappear anyway. So either the Bible is true and the objections are meaningless and false, or the Bible is not true and the objections are meaningless and false. See this? Scripture is powerful, guys. Learn to know what it says. Learn to stand on it. This is not like Joel Sedeke's coming up with this stuff. This is God's word and the power thereof smashing non-Christian arguments, unbiblical arguments. It's not me. It's God's word. It's the power of God's word. All right. Um, Noah is asking a question. Are you going to explain the impossibility of the contrary today? Noah, great question. Not directly, but it's going to be all over these responses I'm giving. In other words, really, I, I kind of just alluded to that, didn't I? Because if the Bible is not true, then you can't make sense of the objections about the Bible, objections to the Bible. If the Bible is not true, God is not the basis of logic, which means logic has no basis, which means you can't argue logically against the Bible. So the impossibility of the contrary, uh, when, when presuppositionalists talk about that, what they're saying is if you assume that the Bible is not true and that God is not real, Christianity is not true, then the very tools that you want to use to disprove the Bible fall apart and, and, and poof out of existence like the blip. Okay, uh, you, you can't use logic to disprove God because God is the basis for logic. And we call that the impossibility of the contrary. Either scripture is true uh, or you have no way of knowing anything whatsoever, including that scripture is not true. And you can never argue that. It's it's impossible. The, the contrary position is is literally impossible. You can't prove anything without God, without Christianity. So, I, hey, I guess I did explain it. Uh, Noah, let me know if that's clear, man. All right. Um, let's respond to situation-based objections. And we'll try to keep this one a little shorter and sweet, sweeter, maybe. 
let's say someone has accused Christianity of not being true. It, it hasn't been good for society. You know, it's led to all these wars and bigotry. Uh, it's not, it's not scientific. It's not keeping, it's not in keeping with the facts and the evidence of the world. Here's the key objection or the, the key question to ask. And this is with a view to refuting those objections. Here's what it is. Is it possible that your understanding of the evidence is wrong? Look, there are, there are different ways to handle this presuppositionally, but here's, here's where I'd like to take this. Okay. Is it possible that your understanding, Mr. Skeptic, Mr. Non-Christian, Mr. Unbeliever, is it possible that your understanding of the evidence is wrong? In other words, could the skeptic or unbeliever possibly, logically possibly, not have all the facts yet? Could he be misinterpreting the data? Could there be a fact out there in the cosmos somewhere that answers this objection? If this is even possible, I'm saying if this is even logically possible, then there is no problem. There's no issue. The only objection that the non-Christian can make is simply, I don't know whether that Christian truth claim is true or false. Because unless the non-Christian is willing to say, I possess all knowledge, I am omniscient, I am functionally God in terms of my epistemology, in terms of my knowledge, which they're not willing to say that with good reason, there could be a fact out there that disproves and contradicts his supposed knowledge that Christianity is false. If the skeptic or unbeliever could not have all the facts yet, or could be misinterpreting the data, or if there could be a fact out there that disproves or, or answers his objection, then there is no issue. See, again, we're dealing with a statement about the skeptic, but it says nothing about Christianity. So here's the deal, Jack. If the Lord is not real, if the triune God of Scripture is not there and Christianity is not true, then man has no basis for knowledge at all. See, knowledge requires a reference point. Meaning requires a reference point. In order to know what two means, we need to know, we need to understand it with reference to one and four and three and one billion because two has a relationship to all those other numbers. Every concept, every thing needs to be understood in its proper context. So, if there is no absolute reference point by which we can judge the next thing and then the next thing and then the next thing, ultimately what we're left with is a universe full of abstract or, or I should say discrete data points, D-I-S-C-R-E-T-E, -E, separate, unconnected data points. And there's no way of knowing that one's conclusion about any of those data points is actually accurate because we don't have a starting point for truth without God. See, because man is finite, both in intellectual capacity and in how much knowledge he has or can possibly have, for all he knows, there could be a fact out there that disproves every proposition he believes to be true. And of course, that includes the proposition, Christianity is false. Okay? So within the, within the unbiblical worldview, the non-believing worldview, there is a defeater for knowledge itself. But within the biblical worldview, we do not have this problem. If the evidence doesn't appear to be stacking up in our favor, oh no, somebody went to Jericho and found that the walls didn't collapse, they were still standing or something, which by the way, not true. 
this is one of the reasons I love uh, archaeology because you can go to Jericho and you can see that the walls fell flat. I mean, that's just kind of a cool thing. We, um, it, but but let's say that the evidence didn't corroborate the Bible or or appeared not to. Here's what we can fall back on: evidence is only a meaningful concept because God is there. In other words, the attempt to pit evidence against Christianity not only undermines Christianity, but undermines the concept of evidence in the first place. If you want to use evidence, you have to tacitly assume that Christianity is true to begin with. I want to make this very clear and very explicit, and I'm going to state this boldly, and you might not like to hear it because it sounds like too bold, but this is it. It is impossible for anyone to ever disprove biblical Christianity with any evidence. Let me say that again. It is impossible for anyone to ever disprove biblical Christianity with any evidence. Evidence as a concept requires for its meaning the prior truth of biblical Christianity. So what that means is this. If we find evidence that seems not to corroborate biblical truth claims, we have the evidence wrong. Because if the Bible is not true and the Bible must be taken as a whole, meaning those parts that give the basis for evidence must be taken because the, the way the scripture reveals these things is not just propositionally, but it's all uh, enmeshed. There's, there's a narrative there that you take away one part, the rest of it doesn't make sense. If, uh, if you remove the triune God of scripture and the word that he revealed, scripture that he revealed as the basis for evidence and, and logic and, and everything that goes with it, um, inductive reasoning, et cetera, et cetera, you don't get evidence anymore. You, evidence is no longer a meaningful concept. And you might say, yeah, but there could be another worldview out there that grounds evidence. Well, there isn't, because what happens is by the time you start trying to develop that worldview, you end up right back with biblical Christianity. I, again, I, I've written about this. I've talked about this. Can't get into it now. Can't get into all the argumentation now, but I have done so. Peruse the website, thethink.institute. Look at my videos and, and podcast episodes. So either Christianity is true or evidence is not a thing. Okay, finally. Here we go. I'm seeing some comments rolling in. Uh, awesome. Thank you. Looks like uh, Richie Torres is watching. Thanks for watching. And uh, <laughs> Richie Torres says, either God exists and his word is true or monkey morality. Yeah, and you wouldn't turn to a monkey. He wouldn't turn to a monkey for uh, moral reasoning. Jane Goodall discovered that when she went into the jungle and um, examined chimpanzees. She found out how brutal they are. There is no morality among monkeys. And there would be none among human beings without God. All right, here we go. Finally, responding to self-based objections. Now, here we need to exercise Christ-like compassion. And yes, I know we should have been doing this with the other two objections as well, but we especially need it here in the third category, or we should have been using it with the other two categories, but we really need it here. People are not fact computational bots. People are people. They experience real pain, real hardship, and sometimes that has been caused by the church or by 
professing Christians, whether fake or real Christians. I've been hurt by Christians, haven't you? And if you're a non-believer, it might be that your non-belief is tied, at least in your mind, to some hurt that was caused to you by a Christian. So we'd be foolish, we Christians, would be foolish not to acknowledge this and to tread delicately, making every effort to speak the truth in love. Ephesians 4, 4.15. So how do we respond? First, remember, Christian, you cannot save anyone. You're not going to necessarily be able to help someone get over serious trauma in a short conversation. Leave the results to God and be okay with not seeing the results that you want in that conversation. It might not be in God's timing to bring the person to faith right then and there. Secondly, make the connection between the person's emotions and his sense of self-worth and the biblical worldview. How? Like this. The person is ex- is expressing hurt and pain rooted in the belief, which is which is an incorrigible belief. It's not irrational, but it is pre-rational. This belief that he has intrinsic value. He's been hurt by the church, for example, and that is wrong. It's wrong because he is a person who shouldn't be unjustly treated in a hurtful way. Now, as a Christian, you can make sense of that operating on the biblical worldview. He's been created in God's image and has God-given rights. See, as a Christian, you're not there to defend any wrong that was done to him by Christians. Instead, you're there to agree with him that he has dignity. See, human dignity, though, does not arise from atheism, nor from any other non-Christian system, at least certainly not to the degree that it is taught in the Bible, where we have the account of God himself not only making human beings in his image, but becoming a human being, thereby validating human existence in, 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 in an incredibly unprecedented way. So his feelings are not in line with unbelief. And yet, the very same Bible that says he's been created in the image of God and says that God cares for him, as Jesus says in Matthew 5.45, that God meets the daily needs of the righteous as well as the unrighteous, that same Bible also says that his deepest need is sin. Sorry, his deepest problem is sin and his deepest need is reconciliation to God because the wages of sin is death, according to Romans 6.23, but the gift of God is everlasting life, eternal life, in Christ Jesus. And Jesus came to lift burdens, Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30, and to set the captives free, John eight thirty six. So always bring your apologetics back to the gospel and to an invitation to repent and receive Christ as Savior and Lord. Remember, apologetics is there to vindicate God's truth, but also to aid in evangelism and in fulfilling your peace of the Great Commission. All right, so that about wraps it up for me. Quick shout outs to those who I haven't mentioned yet who are watching. Curtis Cutler, what is up? Thank you so much for watching. Your friendly neighborhood atheist. What's up, Ethan? So glad you're watching. Thanks, man. Uh, Richie Torres, MMA. Are you an MMA fighter? That's that's awesome, man. Um, how am I doing? I'm doing great. 
better than I deserve, as boomers like to say. All right. Um, so that about wraps it up. Thank you so much for watching. This is the Think Podcast. It is a ministry of the Think Institute. And uh, you can get all of our shows, all of our podcast shows by going to thethink.institute slash podcast. Um, you're definitely, if you're a dad, you're deaf or, or a, uh, a future dad, you're going to definitely want to check out our Catechids podcast, which I do with my kids, which is a lot of fun. Also, I want to give one more quick reminder that you can support this ministry by going to give.crew.org slash 1018841. That's give.cru.org slash 1018841. And hey, we have these two new classes coming up. One is a biblical study of Ephesians. The other is the apologetics of Jesus and Paul. These are cohort-based courses that you can take and you can study God's word. Uh, the the first course, the first cohort-based course, course is based around the think method of biblical study, which is something that I created, which I based it on 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. Um, all scripture is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. And um, that is going to be starting up soon. We don't have exact dates on that, but that's going to be starting up soon. You can register your interest in that. It'll be maybe like Wednesday nights, maybe Saturday mornings. I'm not sure, but definitely check that out. But the apologetics of Jesus and Paul is one that I'm really looking forward to. It's going to be going through biblical examples of the Lord Jesus and the apostle Paul engaging in apologetics with their opponents and dissecting how they did it. And looking at how they did it presuppositionally. Um, you know, presupp is not something that started with Cornelius Van Til. It actually goes back all the way to scripture. So thank you so much for watching. And man, am I forgetting anything? I don't know. If so, let me know in the comments. But uh, remember, this is not goodbye. This has just been a little pit stop along the way of your spiritual journey. And um I certainly hope you heard something helpful today. I know it was helpful to me to write this up, to write up this article and uh, and post it for you. I really do hope it was helpful. And as always, until next time, I hope it made you think.